uh, it's great to be with you and, um, and sharing again from God's Word, which is a, a delight. Um, and today we, we are entering our final session in Philippians, uh, session 17 in this four-chapter book. Um, and we, I hope that you've enjoyed this journey. I, I, I hope that you find it uh, enriching as God has been speaking to us about His, uh, and through His Word, sorry, and about His will for our lives. I hope you find it challenging and encouraging. Um, but this morning, as, as this letter uh, draws to a close, um, it flows directly on from where we left it last week in verse 10 to 13. Uh, so if you have a copy of God's Word, please do turn to Philippians chapter 4. Uh, take one of those hardback red ones um, and have a look at it there. If you didn't bring one with you, please do that. Um, but in those verses that we looked at last week in verses 10 to 13, um, we thought about the theme of contentment. And that theme of contentment was really brought up as Paul was thanking the Philippian church who had sent, them a, sent him a gift. Uh, Paul is in prison in Rome under house arrest, and they had sent him a gift, um, which was brought by a guy called Epaphroditus. And Paul used that opportunity, yes, to say thanks for that gift, and we'll see more of that today. But he also used it to show that financial security and material possessions are not the foundation of Paul's joy, not the foundation of his contentment. Because as he said in verse 11, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances, in plenty and need, etc. In any and every situation, I've learned to be content. Because Paul, as we saw last week, Paul had his contentment rooted in Jesus Christ, rooted in the salvation that Jesus brought for him, rooted in the eternal life that was secure. That, that's where Paul could find contentment, whatever was going on. And so Paul's contentment is not based on his bank balance. It's not based on his material possessions. But however, that doesn't mean that he's flippant about those things. He's incredibly grateful, as we'll see this morning, about uh, the, the gifts that, uh, that the Philippian church has provided for him in those material ways, those financial ways. And so by giving thanks to the Philippians, what we're going to see today is Paul gives thanks for them as he directs the glory to God as the giver of all good things. Then this closing section is going to teach us much about, about the nature and the purpose and the reason for Christian giving, Christian generosity. But what is the nature and the purpose and the reason for Christian generosity and Christian giving? Uh, and I realize that talking about finances isn't always a comfortable thing to do. Uh, some of us would prefer to keep our financial affairs very private, and I'm not saying that we have to revert that and, and reverse that. Some of us wish we could be more generous, but the reality of our financial situation and the, the circumstances we're under just stifle that desire. Some of us do then give generously and sacrificially to both the church here and to God's work in other avenues. And so I recognize there are many different ways that the topic of finances can be thought of and emotions that we bring to this theme. Uh, and my prayer this morning is that whatever our financial situation, uh, we will be encouraged by what God has to teach us, and particularly what he has to teach us about what it means to engage in joyful giving. Th this whole series has been about joy. The book of Philippians is rooted in joy. In fact, our series title has been Deep Roots of a Joyful Faith. And so as Paul talks about giving here and finances, just like he does in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, as we'll see, that we can give joyfully. And so I think God has much to teach us about that this morning and how we can do that. And so Philippians 4, we're going to read from verse 14 right to the end of the chapter and indeed the end of the letter in verse 23. So let's read God's word together. Philippians 4, 14. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, Thessalonica 
You sent aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To God and to, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. All God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Let, let's pray before we, uh, before we unpack these verses together. God, we thank you for the gift of your word to us. And I pray, Father, that now as we reflect on these verses, you, your voice would teach us. And Father, we would see your heart for what it means to, to steward our finances well. Uh, God, that you would help us to deal with this topic, which can be difficult and, and we need to tread sensitively. Yet, God, you have truth here for us. And that truth is joyful. And so help us to see that, I pray. Uh, and give me help as we share. In your name we ask. Amen. So, uh, so hopefully you, you got a sense there through those verses of this, this idea of, of joyful giving and the attitude that, that Paul talks about here. Um, I think in this, uh, in this passage we see four aspects of joyful giving, and we're going to work our way through these four. The first one is the biggest one. We'll spend much more time there and then quickly move through the other three. But in these, in these verses we see these four, uh, these four aspects. We see the givers, the Philippian church themselves. We see the receiver, Paul, of course, who received these gifts. We see the source of all this giving, God himself. And we see, finally, the family of the Christian church. The givers, the receivers, the source, and the family. And so we will begin by thinking about the givers. And, and as Paul is thanking the Philippian church for their gifts, we get an insight into what has motivated them to give. Indeed, what is, what is uh, the attitude that they have brought to that giving. And I want to suggest these two main things, that their joyful giving was both gospel-driven and God-focused. Gospel-driven and God-focused. And that enabled joyful giving. Um, and so to take these in turn, firstly, gospel-driven. Well, we see that emphasis in, in, in the desire to see the impact of the gospel spread and what Paul says about them in verses 14 to 16. Let me read those verses again. Paul says to the Philippian church, yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. See, as, as we mentioned last week um, as well, the Philippian church had been generous and supportive of Paul for years. Right from their early encounters, that early acquaintance with the gospel, they had supported Paul. And it seems that the church had continued to support Paul as he moved from Philippi through Macedonia. And Macedonia was the area that Philippi was in. And so as he moved through Macedonia onto Thessalonica, right down to Corinth, it seems that the Philippian church supported him throughout that journey. And we see that journey recorded for us in Acts 16, 17, and 18. It's, it's Paul's second missionary journey, really, where he goes through Macedonia back to Corinth before heading back uh, to Antioch. And you may know that that Paul moves from place to place, and we see that through that second half of Acts. And that, those, those chapters of 16, 17, and 18 in Acts are fascinating to see how Paul moves, but particularly his relationship with the churches in each place. And there are times when Paul moves in every place he stops, he shares the gospel, he seeks to establish a church. That's his mission. 
And then when, after he did a loop of the Mediterranean Sea, he often went back to as many of those places as he could to revisit them, to encourage the churches there. And he's doing that, and he continued to do that up until he was arrested, and he's now back in Rome um, where, he's, where he's awaiting potential execution. And, and during those travels, as Paul traveled around, there, there were times that he stayed in, more, in one place longer than others. Uh, and when he did that, he often found his own work. So we see in Acts 18, he stays in Corinth, and he is, is a tent maker with Priscilla and Aquila. And, and so he, he earns his own way there. He doesn't want to be a burden to the church. Because there are other times when he's traveling, he doesn't stay long enough to have his own employment. And so he's, he's not self-sufficient. And it is the churches then who support him in what he's doing because he is working for the gospel. And from what we read here in these verses in Philippians 4, it seems that there were some churches who were more generous than others. The Philippian churches supported him, and, and as he said, not one church shared with me except you only when he moved on in that first loop. And special mention is made to the Philippian church here. And then when we look at what Paul says about giving and finances in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, we see that he groups the Macedonian churches all together. Philippi was one of those towns and cities in Macedonia, but he, says about, he talks about how the, the Macedonian churches supported him, and we're going to read some of those verses in a minute. But the point that I'm trying to make, and the point that I think Paul is showing is, you gave to me for the advance of the gospel. What you provided for me enabled gospel ministry. And so, therefore, their giving, their joyful giving was gospel-driven. They wanted to see Paul continue to move the gospel throughout the known world. And so, they gave financially to enable him to do so. And so, their giving was gospel-driven, firstly. The second thing then is that their giving was God-focused, and of course those two things are linked. But their giving was God-focused in the sense that they're not giving to gain approval from Paul. They're giving because they want to worship God through their giving. And we see this really clearly in 2 Corinthians. If you want to flick back there, you can. Uh, some of these verses will appear on the screen too. So 2 Corinthians 8, I just want to read the first uh, five verses of that passage. 2 Corinthians 8. And now, brothers and sisters... We want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. I mean, goodness, we could spend some time there, couldn't we? Their overflowing joy and extreme poverty welled up in generosity. Those two things. Maybe overflowing joy might well up in generosity. I get that, but, but extreme poverty welled up in generosity. You can see that how, how generous this church really was, these churches really was. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. And so you can see that they gave, the, the, the Macedonian churches are generous, and they gave as a result of the grace they'd received. They gave out of hearts overflowing with joy. They gave, first of all, to the Lord. They gave to the Lord's people. Their, their giving was God-focused. It wasn't about impressing Paul or anyone else. God was their primary focus. And then, of course, we see that a wee bit later in Second Corinthians chapter 8, particularly in verse 9, that their giving is God-focused because it is God who's given them the example of what it means to be generous in giving his son Jesus. We see this in, in verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty, so that you through his poverty 
might become rich. You see, Jesus is the model of giving. The Macedonian churches grasped that. The grace that they had received, the generosity from God, overflowed from their lives into then generosity to God's people. So the Macedonian churches, of which the Philippian church was one, was incredibly generous, and it gave with a gospel-driven, God-focused mindset and motivation. But it's not just in Corinthians that we see this God focus. We see it back here in Philippians 4 too. Paul explains that the gift that he received was very much appreciated, yes. But more than that, it was a gift to God. He describes it in verse 18 as a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. See, Paul was happy with it, yes. He was amply supplied. He, he, he received what was given and is grateful for it. But this was a sacrifice to God. And, and this Old Testament imagery of sacrifices at the temple shows just how clearly these gifts were given to God, were given because of God's grace, and were given for God's purpose. So it's a sacrifice pleasing for God to use, as he determined. The the Philippians are giving, they're joyfully giving, they're gospel-driven in their giving, and they're God-focused in their giving. And and as we think about how that practically then worked out, these sound like nice sound bites. Okay, we want to joyfully give. We want to be gospel-driven in our giving and God-focused. Fabulous. What does that actually mean? Well, we can see from the Philippian churches that it meant that they were generous and they were sacrificial. They were generous and sacrificial. And we know that because Paul was amply supplied by their gifts. Paul didn't have to scrimp through because their gifts just about covered. No, he was amply supplied. They were generous. And they were a fragrant sacrifice to God. That even as we saw from Corinthians, even when they were in extreme poverty, they gave. They gave even beyond some of their means at times. They were gospel-driven. They were God-focused, which meant that their giving was generous and sacrificial. And I, and I, wonder, I wonder if that could be said of us. How do we come and how do we think about our giving? Our giving to God. And I mean that individually and corporately. Do we consider our own finances and the finances of this church in this way? Do we seek to be gospel-driven, God-focused, generous, sacrificial? This is, this, is, this is tough and this is challenging. Just as an aside, and you will know that as a church family, we, we seek to give regularly to mission. And we seek to do that in this way. We might not always get it right, but the members have agreed in what we have decided to give. And I'm grateful for the generous heart of this church. And that generous heart of this church as a body reflects the generous hearts of each of us as individuals who make this up. But these are challenging words, aren't they? Uh, I, was, I was struck by these words from Mark Kent Hughes. What we do with our resources is a window into our souls. The question is, What does God see when he looks in? And of course, that that challenge sounds incredibly familiar to us, doesn't it? This is just a man saying this. The authoritative words of Jesus says something very similar, doesn't it? In Matthew 6. In Matthew 6, Jesus says, Do not store up treasures for yourself on earth, where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, Jesus is saying where we place our treasure is an indication of the, of the condition of our heart. And so what do our hearts show? Or should I say, 
What do our finances reveal about our hearts? Do do they show a a life of a joyful giver? A gospel-driven, God-focused, generous, sacrificial giver? It's it's deeply challenging stuff. I'm not wanting to make anyone unduly burdened. If the Lord is burdening us to how we respond to this, as I know I felt this week, then, 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 then that's one thing. But I'm not wanting to egg this on any further than he will. Because we must remember that, yes, this is challenging, but God's grace is the motivating factor for our giving, not guilt. Not a burden of what we think everyone else is doing. It is God's grace and our understanding of that, the lavish grace that he has given. That is what motivates us to give. You see, we're we're to take our status as children of God seriously. And and throughout Philippians, Paul has been showing us this, that, that we are to know that knowing Christ is of surpassing worth. So I count all else as loss for the sake of knowing him. We know that our citizenship is in heaven, in chapter 3, verse 20. We know that we store up treasures there, therefore. We fix our eyes there. We press on toward that goal. And that means that our whole lives, our our families, our careers, our spare time, and our finances are laid before God then for him to use as he directs. we, We live as joyful givers, recognizing that everything we have is a gift from him anyway. And so let's give it all back to him as for his glory, for his renown, for him to use. See, there's, a, there's to be a joy in our giving, not a begrudgingness. Second Corinthians, again, says this so clearly in Second Corinthians 9, verse 7. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. A cheerful giver, joyful giver. Gospel-driven, God-focused, sacrificial, generous, joyful. And doesn't that show a, a whole change in the attitude to how we value our things in the world that we live in? And so we've seen that the Philippian church seem to be just that. They are joyful givers. And so to move back to Philippians 4. We've thought about the givers. Now let's think about the receiver. Let's think about Paul himself. Because I think as we see Paul's response to the gifts that he's received, we can see the same attitude. Paul is as well gospel-focused and God, or gospel-driven and God-focused. We can see that in how he receives the gifts that are given, that he is concerned about the gospel and he's focused on God. And we see that even in the language that he uses in verses 14 and 15. He says that it was good of you to share in my troubles. And then in verse 16 again, he said that, um, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared in the matter of giving and receiving. The ESV has that term as partnered. Not one church entered into partnership with me. And that language is the same language that he used in Philippians 1 when he talked about the Philippians sharing in the gospel, partnering in the gospel. So in, in, verse, in chapter 1, verse 5, he said, your partnership in the gospel. In verse 7, he said, you share in God's grace with me. See, Paul's grateful for their gift, yes, But he's grateful for their gift because it shows that God is continuing to burden their hearts to share in the gospel ministry with him. It's a sharing, a fellowship, a partnership. That word is sort of all the same wrapped up in the Greek. That they are partnering with Paul in God's mission. And so even as Paul receives these gifts, he's grateful for them because it's showing him that their hearts is still about mission as his certainly is. See, we've noted many times throughout this letter, Paul's unwavering drive 
is to see the gospel spread in everything he's doing. Even when he's in prison, the gospel is spreading. Even when he's under suffering, the gospel is spreading. And so he's living this gospel-driven life. So everything he has and everything he needs is filtered through the question of, does it advance the gospel? Does it help me share Jesus? And that includes these gifts from the Philippians. They had historically, historically provided for him even when he was in Thessalonica and no other church shared with him, but they did, so he was able to continue. And now, even when he's in Rome, his needs are amply supplied. And that phrase, doesn't that phrase, doesn't, it gives me the impression that, that he's got enough to do what he needs to do. He's not saying, your gifts have lavished upon me, thanks, I've been able to buy an Xbox for, to put the time in here while in Rome. No, no, no. I have got what I need. I'm amply supplied to continue the work that God has given me to do. And at the minute, while he's in house arrest in Rome, that work is writing letters just like this. He wrote a number of letters while under arrest in Rome. And so this is vital work. As we saw last week, he had to pay for the rent of the house that he was imprisoned in in Rome. He needed this money, but he needed the money to enable the ministry to continue. And so Paul is gospel-driven in his whole life. And even when it came to the gifts that he received, he didn't use them to make his own life more comfortable. Everything he had was in service to the gospel. And so Paul is gospel-driven. And secondly, he's also God-focused. And I think we see this mainly in the way that he responds in verse 17. So he said, thank you for this gift. And you gave, even when I was in Thessalonica, more than once when I was in need. And then verse 17, not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. And and I could probably ask Barry or David or others to, to talk about the, the accounting language that's being used here. But, because that is, that is specific and that is intentional that Paul is using that language. But what he's really trying to show here is that the overwhelming, his overwhelming desire for the Philippians is that their heavenly account is grown. It's similar language to what Jesus used in Matthew 6. Paul's saying that the financial gift that the Philippians have sent him is a blessing to him because it's showing that their treasure is in heaven. They're investing in gospel ministry. So it's showing him, I, I don't desire your gifts. I want your, your account to be credited, your heavenly account, your eternal account, because your treasure is in heaven. You're investing there by giving money to me. So you're so focused there that you're generous here. I think that's a challenge to us, isn't it? Stephen Lawson summarized it like this. By their monetary gifts, the Philippians are storing up an eternal profit for themselves. In other words, because they are gospel-driven and God-focused, Paul celebrates their gospel-drivenness and God-focusedness because that's what their gift is showing him. See, Paul's desires for them to grow spiritually, to mature spiritually. And so he's focused not just on his own growth and his own comfort, he's focused on them, God's work in them. And so as they give to him, he's saying, isn't this wonderful? God is still at work in you, and so may he, may he bolster and grow your heavenly account. And so Paul is gospel-driven. He's God-focused, not just for himself, but even for those who have given to him. And what does this all lead to? Well, we see in, in verse 20, we see the, the summary of all this. Maybe we might think that, that throughout this letter, Paul has clearly shown his affection for the Philippian people. He's clearly shown his desire to see, uh, to see them grow and nurture. So maybe we might think that this is going to be a, a big rousing crescendo of, of love and adoration poured on the people for what, is, what God is doing among them, but that's not what we see. What we see is Paul in his gospel-driven, God-focused state saying, praise be to God. Verse 20, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. 
Amen. And this speaks to us of not only of Paul's God-focusedness, but it also speaks to us of our third point, of the source of all this generosity, the source of all this giving. See, Paul is showing that God deserves the praise, the glory forever and ever, because as we mentioned earlier, everything comes from his hand anyway. And Paul recognizes that in verse 19. He's just talked about the fragrant, acceptable sacrifice. And then he said, And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Paul knows that his God, his Paul's personal, knowable, relatable God, our God, is able to meet every need for the Philippian church and indeed all his people. And, and now we need to make sure that we understand this properly because this verse could be twisted to give, uh, to give a false message that when we show generosity to others, God will give us back even more than what we've given away. And and what that means is actually then our motivation for giving is greed. If we give so that God will give us more, then actually we're not being generous, we're being greedy. And not only is that counterintuitive, I think that's counterbiblical. And so that's why we need to understand, what does this mean then, that God will give all that we need? Well, we need to understand the significance between what we want and what God ordains that we need. And sometimes those are the same, but sometimes they're very different. It's not that God is unable to give us everything we want. He's the creator and sustainer of the universe. Everything is in his hands. He can give us whatever he desires. He can give us whatever we might want. But as a good father to us, he knows that everything we want isn't always best for us. And so therefore, we must humbly submit to the one who knows us better than we know ourselves, the one who holds the entirety of the universe in his sovereign hands. And so we trust him to give us what he determines we need rather than all the things that we might want. And there are times that that might well be physical provision. Absolutely. That might be what God ordains we need. But this is certainly not the promise of that. To read that into this verse would actually be to misunderstand all of Philippians. It's to to misunderstand what Paul has just said about contentment. Contentment is not found in times of plenty. It is found in Jesus Christ. And therefore, you can be content in times of plenty or in times of need. And so God will give us what we need. Uh, And so we we need to understand then that, that there... The priorities should not be based on the physical, material world. No, this is about deepening spiritual roots. This is spiritual work that God will grant us for. And our Kent Hughes has helpfully said, God would supply the need for joy and for steadfastness and for endurance and for humility and for concord or unity and for peace and for the ability to face all circumstances. It's a summary of Philippians in a sentence. God will supply the need for all those things. The stunning scope of the promise is that there is not one thing that they and all faithful Christians truly needed that God would not give. That's what Paul's saying when he said, my God will meet all your needs because he is the source of contentment. He is the source of where we find strength in suffering. He is the one who is at work in you to to work and complete his purposes in your life. He's the one who sanctifies you. He is the one who will be who we can be confident that will bring to completion his work in your hearts. God will give us all that we need as we follow him. And that should be a great comfort to us. Because in a world that that seems to to sap our joy, in a world that that seeks to rob us of contentment and, and disable our ability for unity and for peace 
the world can't provide all those things, but God will provide all that we need. And because of that, because of the the confidence we can have in the source of all that we need, we can joyfully give. We can joyfully give. And our final section then, as we, as, uh, as we look at this chapter, we see verse 21 to 23, and maybe, maybe sometimes we're, we're a little bit guilty of just skipping over these greetings at the ends of Paul's letters, um, but it has much to show us here, and I think his heart continues in this theme of joyful giving as he thinks about the family, as he thinks about church, the body of Christ, and how not necessarily we're to give with our finances, but how we're to give with our emotions, how we're to love one another. Verse 21 begins with, greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The ESV has that, I think, probably slightly clearer, is greet every saint, every saint in Christ Jesus. The idea is that there is a unity and a camaraderie in the family of God that goes way beyond anything else and that unites us. And therefore, there's an emotional connection with one another, a deep love in Christ for one another. It's, it's more than likely that the Roman Christians who are sending greetings through Paul here have never met the Philippians. The Philippians haven't met them, yet there is love between them. And that's why these greetings can be shared, because they are united together. And as they share love for one another, they are a wonderful witness to the world that they live in for Jesus' love. And isn't that what Jesus himself said in John thirteen thirty five when he said, the new command I give you, love one another. And then he said, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And so through our love for our brothers and sisters, we shine the gospel outward into the world. And so my encouragement for us this morning is to joyfully give yourself to the family of God. Joyfully give your time, your energy, your emotions, your homes, your finances maybe to the church of God, to your brothers and sisters. This is what it means to faithfully live out the one another's of the New Testament. It's what it means to take seriously what Jesus tells us here. If we are to love one another, and by the way, this comes just after he has washed the disciples' feet and said, I've set you an example so you can go and love one another. This is deep affection. And of course, this means relational risk. Of course, it means the possibility of being let down by people. It means vulnerability and it needs wisdom. Absolutely. I'm not saying that we're just all guns blazing, lay everything on the table for everyone to see. But there's got to be deep love and affection for our brothers and sisters because we're family in Christ. And he is the source of the one who gives us all love and grace and mercy. And so we share that with one another, which speaks to the watching world of his love. And so we see the givers, the receivers, the source, and the family. And to finish this letter off, isn't it wonderful that Paul reminds them of two main things, God's miraculous work in salvation and his grace. In verse 22, all God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. Paul is is encouraging the Philippians here, just like he did, remember back in the middle of chapter one, when he said, I've been imprisoned, and the, the reason why I'm here is being made known to the palace guard. In other words, Paul's saying, the gospel is spreading throughout the Roman soldiers who are in the inner circle of Caesar. And now he finishes the letter by saying, especially the brothers and sisters, the believers in Caesar's household. Paul's saying to a church that is under the cosh in suffering and in a culture and a context that is saying the gospel is wrong, that he is saying in the corridors of power, God is at work. 
We worship the true and sovereign king. And so there's believers even in Caesar's household and they send you greetings in Philippi. What a wonderful encouragement that must have been for them. And finally, Paul signs the letter off in the same way that he started. In chapter 1, verse 2, he said, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And he finishes this letter with, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. I think it's wonderful that everything that Paul has said in this dense, joyful letter is bookended by grace. It's been infused by grace the whole way through. And that is what enables joy. Grace enables joy. Grace brings us into relationship with Jesus. Grace then allows us to show that, that love of him to other people. And grace ultimately is what enables deep roots of a joyful faith. It's not about effort on its own. It's not about our own ability to make our way there. No, it's grace upon grace as God works in our lives, sanctifying us more and more into the person of his, into the likeness of Jesus Christ so that we can live a joy-filled, deep, deeply rooted faith in him. And so I pray as our journey through Philippians comes to a close, I pray that the lessons that God has been speaking to our hearts here about how we can be united with him and how we can be joined together as brothers and sisters, in our love and service of one another, and ultimately in making Christ known to a watching world. I pray that those lessons go on and on and on, and embed in our hearts, and are lived out in our lives. Would you pray with me as we finish? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that indeed you are the source of all good things. You are sovereign you are ruler and king. You are generous and loving and gracious. And indeed, as Ephesians say, you lavish your grace upon us. And ultimately, Father, we know that it is by grace that we are saved through faith. It is not from ourselves so that no one can boast. And so I pray, Father, that as we, uh, as we wrestle again with what your grace in our lives means for how we live, particularly, God, as we've seen this morning, in terms of our finances, would you help us, God? Help us, Father, to be motivated by your love and grace. Help us to be, to be so aware of your work in our lives that then that joy overflows into generosity. And Lord, I pray that for us as, a, as individuals, and I pray that for us as a church here. May we continually be ones, uh, be your body here, who, who thinks of others, who meets needs of others, who, who, so, who are so gospel-driven and God-focused that we are aware of where the needs are and therefore can can use the resources that you have given and steward them well for your glory. And I pray for each of us, Father. Um, God, I pray for those of us who are struggling with finances, for whom this, uh, the week by week, if not month by month, strain just wears us down. And indeed, it robs us of contentment. It robs us of joy. It brings deep anxiety. God, I pray that we will, we will be able to, to bring our prayers and petitions before you and somehow, Father, in your wonderful way, surpassing all knowledge, you will bring peace. And I pray, Father, that as brothers and sisters together, we would support one another in this way. That there would be a vulnerability among us and also a humility to express when we need some help. And a generous spirit for those that may be in a position to do so. We thank you, Father, that ultimately we can do all of this because... 
your son came to give himself. And in doing so, Father, took my sin and ours upon himself so that through faith and repentance we can know relationship with you, we can know a renewed status as children of yours, welcomed into your presence by the grace of Jesus Christ. And so we thank you. And we thank you for this letter and for what you've been teaching us through it. I pray that you would plant it deep in our hearts for your glory, Lord, and for the extension of your kingdom, we pray. Amen.